All right, I want to thank everyone for coming uh, to Zurb Soapbox. This is likely to be our last one in this building. We're moving down the street, so it'll be really exciting, and I want to thank you all for being here. Uh, if you guys are live tweeting, we do have the hashtag uh, Zurb Soapbox, so feel free to tweet any uh, quotable quotes you hear today. Uh, <laughs> no pressure. No pressure, right? <clears throat> Uh, I believe it's our phone number. So, uh, oh, it's up on the wall behind me. <laughs> yeah. Um, let me just start with a brief introduction. At age 12, Doug Mack was working at a local computer shop for free. What he learned was to study the products you were selling, a lesson in tenacity that he carried throughout his career, from co-founding Scene 7, working at Adobe, and now is CEO of One King's Lane, the popular e-commerce site for the home. Before taking the job as CEO of One King's Lane, he studied it closely as a customer. Knowledge that served him well in taking the company from 25 million in yearly sales to 200 million. Now he's taking the company mobile. I want to get into all of that, but please first, let's give a warm welcome to Doug Mack. Where do, you, where do you guys dig this stuff up? Uh, you know, uh, I, I was once a reporter, so I, I'm able to, to, to do a little digging. Bringing back some memories. <laughs> I had to work for free because you weren't allowed to be paid. I would have gladly been paid. <laughs> well, that, that, that takes care of the first question. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, I, I, before we get into all the mobile, I do actually want to go into your background. And I really found that story of you working for free and learning the, uh, about selling and salesmanship, fascinating. And I was kind of wondering if you could just uh, tell us kind of what you actually learned through that experience and how that kind of shaped your career going forward. Yeah, it, the, the genesis, can everyone hear me okay? Yeah, yeah good. The genesis of this story was it was a holiday. I was 12 years old. I went into a local family computer store with my dad. We couldn't get help in the store for 10, 15 minutes. And my dad's like, this is for the birds. We're not going right. to buy anything here. And... Um, we went up to the shopkeeper and basically said, my son knows a lot about computers. He'd be happy to work here. Right. And uh, what I began to learn from that experience was customers were coming in with lots of detailed questions about the products, different software products at the time. There was the Commodore 64 and a few other <laughs> machines like that. And um, my big learning there was, you know, no BS. You really got to learn the product. And so what we had in the back was a shrink wrap machine. So we'd go in, we'd crack open Quicken or whatever there was at the time. We'd use it a lot, we'd get to know it, and then we'd shrink wrap it back and we'd put it on the shelf again. And when customers came in, I was really, really prepared to answer their questions. And that is definitely a lesson that carried through me with my entire career and every choice I've made of. Um, I've always wanted to work for companies that I love the product. And I, I can't connect with the notion of going to a company that I think it's like a big, successful, interesting company, but I'm not passionate about what they do as a company mm -hmm. because you have to be ultimately your own consumer. And you alluded to the One King's Lane experience of, I heard about One King's Lane, I thought it was cool, I started buying stuff from the site. Mm -hmm. And it showed up at my house and I was like, this is amazing stuff. I can build a great <laughs> company around this. You know, better product for less money. This is interesting. Right. Um, and that really informed. So that early experience carried through all the way for me. And, and, and I, I kind of want to talk about, you, know, you kind of touched on it briefly, of using One King's Lane as a customer. But using it as a customer, before you even took the job as CEO, what were the kind of the opportunities you started identifying and saying, how, how can I really build a company around this? 
Yeah. You know, first thing first that was important to me, even to step away from the product, is I met the founders of the company, right. and I thought they were amazing. So first, I was like, there's a soul to this company of two founders who passionately believe in the mission of the company that we can build on. So that was foundational. Um, and then, in terms of opportunities, I've always felt um, e-commerce is interesting, uh, very much dominated by Amazon, eBay, Netflix, and a few other major stalwarts of e-commerce. But um, there haven't been a lot of new interesting concepts introduced and gotten to scale over the last five, 10 years. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the same original players. If you look across the internet and say, you know, what was the original community social site? It was GeoCities. You know, they're long dead. Now it's been replaced by Facebook. I see somebody laughing. You remember GeoCities. <laughs> or, you know, you can kind of kind of go through this game of AOL back in the day, Twitter now, you know, and list goes on and on. You know, it was kind of Amazon 1999, Amazon 2013. And so I definitely felt that there was a, an opportunity for more innovation off the following thesis, which is what Amazon has basically done is taken the offline model of the print catalog taken that and put it online and made it really big and searchable and worked like hell to make it cheap and fast. Mm -hmm. But I felt there's a whole front end opportunity to say, <laughs> hey, the internet as an interactive forum where you can get much better feedback and information from your customers, there's a whole front end innovation experience uh, that I thought was interesting. I thought the site was interesting because everyone's logged in all the time. Mm -hmm. And in a mobile future where people might access you from five different devices during the day to have a universal profile of your customer, I thought was interesting. Um, and I just, you know, back then, One King's Lane was 0% mobile revenue, but um, I could feel the rumblings of the mobile wave coming. I mean, I remember the day at Adobe, I was sitting at my desk and watching the debut of the iPad. I was just like, holy crap, this is amazing. This is going to be really big. And that's when my mind really got going around how will things like the iPad impact future commerce mm -hmm. and One King's Lane as a platform to play into that. Too long of an answer for you? No, no, perfect. <laughs> Go as long as you want. There, there are only short questions and long answers. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but that kind of also touches on, a, uh, on something we were talking about before this, is that whole idea of best of, best of breed. Because you have Amazon, which has become more generalized. You can get everything through Amazon now, where it started out as it was just books. Now you get everything. And now you have One King's Lane and other avenues to go to for specific items. Yes. And what are the challenges in that, bringing that to mobile? Yeah, you know, actually, and I'll even step back from mobile on a general thesis, which is I do think there's only one Amazon. Um, in this day and age, there's too much capital, too much talent, too much competition to try to be all things to all people. Mm -hmm. uh, Amazon's advantage is they started in the mid-90s. You know, pretty soon it will be 20 years ago that they got up and going. And when I look at new commerce, I think the winners are going to be those who are incredibly deep at a vertical focus. Um, I look at ourselves where there's an underserved home consumer that an Amazon won't serve well, but a new interesting concept can come online and really captivate that consumer. Um, I look at a company, anyone know the company Zulily? Yeah. Not so many. You know, kids' clothing, not the best experience. It costs too much. You have to replace it too often. Um, they came and they said, we're going to fundamentally solve kids' clothing. Um, you know Warby Parker? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's mattering of, of they're, they're going after, uh, you know, a monopolistic eyewear industry where basically all the glasses you buy are too expensive because they all trace back to the same company who sells them to you under different brands. Um, and so I think this rise of vertical commerce is interesting. And I don't think it's a challenge. I think it's actually the only way to win in the next generation of commerce is to be the very best at what you do because everything is one click away. Right, right. And, and, and that's, you bring up an interesting point because 
when you took the company, took over from the company in 2010, uh, you know, there's been such amazing growth with it. Uh, you know, you've gone from a staff of 29 to 200. You're in Beverly Hills. 350. 350 now. Okay. Yeah. My numbers are a little out there. I, didn't, I guess I didn't do too much. I, I didn't do as good a digging as I thought I did. Um, That's what I'm here for. All right. Awesome. <laughs> and, and you've snagged some top talent from like Intuit, Skype, Amazon. Got a gentleman here from Mint. You know, uh, and you also said like in Fast Company, and I want to quote this directly, when you have a big opportunity, you should be aggressive. You need to invest in talent, technology, infrastructure to stay ahead of that conveyor belt of chocolate, obviously, referencing I Love Lucy. Um, so with that vertical uh, path and all that good stuff, how do you stay in the lead and, and how do you kind of keep growing while still being the best at that particular Yeah, you, touch, you touched on a couple of things of uh, talent and technology. Uh, one that I'll add to this stack is the notion of continuous innovation. Um, one of my favorite companies of all time, TiVo. Anybody here used to work for TiVo before I get on this thing? At you? Okay, so I won't offend you too badly on this. Um, so TiVo, best 1.0 ever. You know, consumers loved it, um, addicted to it. Great UI, great design, great consumer experience. Fundamentally changed the ability to view television. Never launched a 2.0. No Act 2. They just kind of rested on their laurels of their first really good thing. And it's really sad to me because of what they might have become if way back when they had that lead, they did something more interesting. <clears throat> we were the first company to launch the flash sales business model for the home in 2009. And that was really interesting. A lot of skepticism. It worked. Um, but one of the immediate things that I challenged us to do as the CEO was, OK, what's our act two? What's our act three? How do we always have something in the pipeline that is the next wave that's building upon this healthy core? So what we did in 2010 is we launched designer tag sales and celebrity tag sales that we allowed the everyday consumer to get access to product that they would never be able to get to on their own. Um, you know, the, Michael Smith, who decorates the White House for the Obamas, runs sales on One King's Lane. You know, that's your only way to get to Michael Smith is through, through us. That was innovation. Um, last year, we launched a vintage marketplace where there's a great thirst in our customer base for vintage product, but we couldn't keep up with it because it's all one-of-a-kind, one-off products. So we launched a marketplace, but with the One King's Lane brand promise, we put experts in to curate the sellers, curate the submission to keep it consistent. So the, the only thing that matters to stay ahead is continued innovation. Um, you have to build on your act one. There's too much talent. There's too many clones to just try to kind of keep breaking your pick on your 1.0. Uh, number two is talent. I spend more than 50% of my time on talent. In the early days, we, I came in, there wasn't an executive team, there was me and the founders. I went out to the, you know, some of the greatest companies um, that have built great companies. We have a lot of eBay executives. Um, we, we've gone into Amazon. We've gone into retail like Ralph, like J. Crew, and put together Condé Nast in the media space, put together this melting pot of talent throughout the organization. So if your talent, you know, the person who does the photography on our side every day, Architectural Digest was their last job. Um, so talent becomes the moat around the innovation strategy. And then technology. Uh, technology changes fast. To do what we do every day uh, has to be supported by something that can scale, has to be automated, has to be dynamic, has to be data rich. All those things put huge barriers against competition. Awesome, and, and you guys are working on technology right now, addressing uh, mobile, and we're fortunate enough to have uh, two of your uh, user experience uh, 
people here, uh, John Lieberman and Sarah, I'm gonna maybe, oh, oh, thank you. <laughs> you saved me from screwing it up. Uh, with us to kind of help uh, flesh out this conversation a little bit further. And uh, I kind of want to talk because mobile is fast overtaking desktop traffic. I mean, that's just a, just a fact of the world we live in now. And, you know, for instance, on Black Friday, there was a 25% increase in just retail sales alone on mobile. What were some of the trends you guys saw over the holiday season, particularly Christmas, and how is that kind of, you know, influencing your guys' design decisions today? And what are you guys working on in terms of that? Yeah, so a couple thoughts. Um, mobile for us in terms of revenue has gone from, in two years, from 0% of revenue and I, people talk traffic a lot on the web because it's sometimes hard to monetize. I just talk about mobile revenue um, when it comes to like what are we really focused on. Zero uh, percent revenue two years ago, 25 percent of revenue as our exit rate for 2012. Happened much faster than I expected. Um, not all of that is within our control. You know, of, of what things we've done, most of that is consumers' intimacy with the devices, whether they're iPhones, iPads, Android, or otherwise. Um, so that's been a huge trend. What we saw in the holiday is in the past, there's a, there's a dirty little secret. Anybody in the commerce industry here? Just a few. Okay, so a little secret of the commerce industry, people love to shop at work. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> Not here at Zurb. No, not at all. <laughs> and so typically, Monday through Friday, you know, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. is a really great shopping window, and things outside that window aren't as strong. Mobile has really changed that because in the past, we would go into Thanksgiving week that we're like, okay, people are basically at work Monday, Tuesday, traveling to where they want to get to Wednesday, family on Thursday, out in retail stores on Friday, home for the weekend. That's kind of four tough days because they're not working when they can shop. <laughs> um, and what happened on Thanksgiving is basically we saw like 40% of revenue come from mobile. So a huge spike that people no longer were leaving e-commerce behind. They were taking it with them whenever they went out. People talk about Black Friday retail. Traditionally, Black Friday is actually a store-based retail phenomenon. That's when you're getting the doorbusters and people are you know, trampling each other at Walmart. E-commerce is not as big of a deal. Um, mobile carried all the way through the holiday season. The other thing we've seen in mobile that I think is staggering um, is the willingness of people to buy really expensive things over devices. That's one thing I did not see coming. Um, I, I did a story with Sarah Lacey on this topic at Pando where basically like my mobile moment was it was a Friday night, I was looking at our sales, we saw a huge leap in sale on Friday night, which is unusual because no one's at work on Friday night. Um, and I drilled into it and it ended up being somebody bought a $20,000 Hermes clutch and then drilled deeper and it was on an iPhone. And I'm just envisioning this customer at a cafe with friends in LA on the iPhone passing around saying, I gotta have this. And they're like, buy it, right. <laughs> you know? You know? Do it, come on. <laughs> and when I say cafe, probably more like a wine bar, right? right. Over a couple right. Of <laughs> and then go ahead and push buy. So I think that's big on mobile. Um, in terms of like where next, um, the introduction, Jonathan and Sarah are leaders in our design organization. Is If you visited One Kingsland, you can see we're a design and inspiration-led company. Uh, Jonathan comes from Mint, Sarah comes from Benefit, so really great mashup of retail and frankly mobile, uh, Mint's more mobile than it is web. And if we want to take a second, you guys share some thoughts on kind of where where you see, now that these trends are kicking in, some of the type of things next in mobile that are interesting to us. 
um, in terms of where we may take things in the future a little bit. All right. And, and Jonathan has a broken leg, so <laughs> um, <laughs> if he falls over. It's working. I'm not on you. Do you look green. Sound it up? Yeah, it's it's the third mic. All right. I can. I mean. Um, I mean oh, there it goes. All right. Uh, the direction we're actually moving in is obviously the one one area. You guys are fans or uh, users of One Kings Lane. You've probably noticed we don't have a native iPad app. Um, so we've been hard at work over the last few months, sort of fleshing out what those features and that experience will be, um, leveraging some of the learnings we've had from the iPhone um, and understanding the capabilities of, of the device. So something you'll have uh, the opportunity to look forward to in the coming months will be a native iPad application. Uh, one of the opportunities we've had, too, is that um, in refactoring the code for that, we'll be building a universal application. So not only will we have a fresh iPad app, but we'll also have a refreshed uh, iPhone application as well. <laughs> and also uh, for Q and A, if we want to dig any deeper, we'll pull both both these two yeah, in with us. Yeah, ask more specific questions. You guys can borrow my mic at any time. Okay. All right, and like in the in the kind of sake of total transparency, I asked them to join today because we're hiring UX designers, visual designers, <laughs> interaction designers. So afterwards, if you think what we do is cool and you believe in some of the vision we talk about, mingle. With and, and Sarah, and ask more. We'll about start our the team. line right here. Okay, we'll just wrap it around. <laughs> and if you have friends, let them know who your friends are. are very good. And I think you touched upon this a little bit, but I kind of want to know what what makes mobile kind of really difficult for retail. Because in the past, a lot of retail has kind of hand waved mobile, and you know, it's it's hard to get like. You know, you know, have the sales function and all that stuff in terms of like responsive sites and then the debate over whether they should go native and all that. What are those difficulties and how are you guys uh, trying to meet those challenges? Yeah, I think at the core of the difficulty is your business model leans mobile or it doesn't on some levels. Mm -hmm. um, when you see the companies who are having success in com commerce, any eBayers in the room? eBay, huge success in mobile. Uh, ourselves, some of the folks like Zulily. And I think what's at the core of it is um, if I have a bad habit of picking on companies, I need to stop this. I'm going to get in trouble. Um, you know, if your restoration hardware and you're updating your home furnishings assortment once a quarter, basically seasonally, spring, summer, winter, slash holiday, um, is there a reason why when somebody's standing in line at Starbucks with their phone, they need to check in and see the latest and greatest thing going on? It's a little tough, right? When you have companies like One Kings Lane, eBay, or others where there's a daily story, there's something fresh. In the case of an eBay, you're, you maybe have active listings, you wanna see how they're doing, you're interacting with customers. In our case, multiple times a day, there may be new interesting products on the site that you wanna see. Your model may have an intrinsic mobile advantage. Um, what we do is we fuel that advantage. In our case, if we're an image-centric company, and that goes back to my background, it's seen some in Adobe. I spent a lot of years in imaging and seeing the power the old picture is a thousand words right. has never been so true. And if it was, you know, pretty true on web, it's, you know, a game changing factor on mobile. People don't really read the web, they surf the web. Uh, people are definitely not reading as much on mobile. That's just my opinion. I have no empirical evidence on that. 
Um, and what we've invested a lot in is great photography so that when people are going through and paging through images, it's getting their shopping temperature up, they're more likely to act. So the intrinsics of our business model, um, the investment in photography is big. If you're a traditional retailer, you're not updating your assortment, you don't have a big investment in, in things like imaging, uh, you may actually be on the wrong end of the mobile uh, shakeout where people may walk into your stores with a mobile device, you get some inspiration at point of purchase, but you see something you like even more on a phone, so it can be really bad. Um, the, the last but not least, and this is something Jonathan and I think about, is um, we really like minimal, simple design. How do you get people, uh, how do you make sure that the interface doesn't become a chrome, you know, the chrome that's in between them and the mission they're looking to accomplish? And on mobile, the bar goes up. Great design is even harder on mobile. Um, we, for example, somebody once asked me, you know, why don't you have social sharing features on your iPhone? And it, the answer was we basically had to pick the fewest, most important things to put on our iPhone app. And we would love for people to share, but it's even more important for people to shop. Um, so when it comes to um, mobile choices, we're even more ruthless. And Sarah and Jonathan showed me the first rev of our iPad app, and my first reaction was, you know, this is awesomely simple. And so I think that's really, really important. Yeah, I think just to augment what Doug was saying is that, you know, simplifying, we know that people, you know, want the most important information first, so simplifying the application. Um, photography for us is huge. Unlike any of the other, actually, commerce sites in our space, we're actually going to be delivering the largest photos on what we call the PDP or product detailed page um, and only servicing the most important information initially. So that, that impact when they see the photo really will hopefully resonate um, them with the, the product will resonate with them um, and encourage them to buy. And one thing you kind of alluded to is native versus app. I think that's very, you have to have a device specific strategy. So in our view, two and a half years ago, if you went on the iPhone and you opened up the browser and you tried to shop One King's Lane, it was a disaster. So we said, all hands on deck, this is an unshoppable experience. Let's put all of our effort into iPhone and getting great on iPhone and getting a five-star app that our customers love and is highly conver converts really well. By contrast, on iPad, people pop open the Safari browser and have that screen size. They get a pretty good shopping experience. They kind of get core one king's lane, so we basically said we can take our time to get the iPad ad right because, frankly, that's something where they get a pretty good experience today native. So I think not everybody in the room is in commerce, but I think about staging your strategy very differently for mobile and tablet based off of what devices are people using, and then is the native experience above the bar or below the bar? And then that's basically how you stage your app strategy. Right, right. And, and what about in terms of, you kind of uh, alluded to, like opening the Safari browser and using that, have you guys thought about maybe making your site more responsive for various devices, or are you guys sticking just with the, that kind of siloed strategy there? Already done. So we didn't speak, do you wanna? Well, were we, that's something that actually we're doing as we're looking to not only create the universal um, applications for native, we're, we're going to be back, going back and refactoring the web experience, phone experience and tablet to be a fully responsive site. So right now, as we're in parallel with the, the iPad application, we're building a fully responsive uh, application that will mirror um, the iPad uh, application as well. And that's iPad specific for every other device. So for example, we, um, we have a very female, very affluent, very iDevice audience, and so um, we have a small number of Android uh, buyers in terms of folks who really spend. That's where we say, okay, mobile optimized, because we're not gonna make a specific app for an Android device, but we need mobile optimized web. So if you actually go on to shop One King's Land on an Android now, it's a pretty good experience, because it's, it's optimized for the device. 
but it's not an app strategy. So that's when I think about this matrix that just kind of goes on and on. <laughs> it's almost as if you got to have multiple multiple strategies there. Uh, one thing, and you guys also have touched upon it a little bit, but there was this interesting quote uh, uh, from Gene uh, Cini. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. You're, uh, it's a Jean Cini. He's French. <laughs> oh, like Jean-Luc. I should have known that. Um, you're chief uh, product and technology officer, and he said it's about taking advantage of interstitial time with mobile shoppers, and you need to grab, you need to grab five minutes and make the most of it. And how do you guys exactly do that in your design, you know, aesthetic? And, and what is your strategy to kind of grab that five minutes and get that, that as you say, get that person to buy the clutch purse? Yeah. So it's actually interesting. I'll give a couple of examples of this mm -hmm. and ask. Um, Jonathan and Sarah to weigh in as well. So Jean is our chief technology officer. His background is Mint. Uh, we hired him uh, last spring overtly with the notion of we're moving towards a mobile first world. So Mint's business is actually, when you think of Mint usage, everyone know Mint personal finance app? Yeah. One of the more successful new Web2 companies out there bought by Intuit. Um, and after they bought buy into it, therefore that's a good time to go recruit really good talent. Um, and we brought him in, in basically with this mobile first mentality for the long haul. And when I think about how to take advantage of the five minutes of interstitial time, uh, you know, first things first is removing frictions and friction and barriers. So um, we have a membership wall that you have to log in to get through. Um, when we do mobile marketing, or if you're an existing member that has logged in on another platform, we try very hard to make sure you actually don't do things like run into membership walls because you're on that small screen in the moment trying to type. You can fat finger things, not get logged in. Um, that's, that's friction along the way. And then once you get in, it's sometimes making really hard choices. So a lot of what we do on One King's Lane is storytelling. We help consumers think about a product and maybe five different ways to use a product. Here's how you can use the bench at the end of, end of your master bedroom bed as an interesting accent to the way you're designing your room. When you're dealing with the four-inch screen, some of those stories can get a little lost. We do things on video, you know, how to make the perfect bed. So basically, you go unplugged on a lot of these experiences, and you become, come back to if somebody's got five minutes interstitial time and they're coming to One King's Lane, they're probably coming to shop. So we go into shop-centric mode, we go into image-centric mode, we go into remove friction mode, mm -hmm. um, and, and make sure that those five minutes are uh, the most interesting five minutes. Notification strategies are great too, in terms of um, the phone as a place where we have another way to notify people when new stuff's up. Just real quickly, when Doc talks about reducing frictions, sort of the three of the defining principles for us are about producing, uh, providing clarity, context, and confidence. Uh, Doug made the reference to the, the Hermes clutch that was purchased. Um, I think, am I allowed to share the, what you shared during the all hands as far as our record purchase? Yeah, go. Okay, so yesterday uh, Doug was showing us a necklace that was purchased. I think the record we have is $39,990. Uh, we joke whether if at $40,000 that would have actually uh, stopped the pers person from actually making the purchase. Um, I don't know whether that was made on a, on a device or not, but clarity, context, and confidence to give the user to buy products like this are sort of the defining principles we use. But Sarah is, comes from the editorial background and actually has a lot of experience in this, so I'll let her talk more about conveying that story um, via the device. Uh, can you can you hear me? I think one of the things that also, I've, this is the first time I've ever worked designing an iPad app, so it's been a really good lesson for me to learn the sort of tension between the two. And I think one of the things that I found is that, you know, people want to, especially on the iPad, don't spend as much time reading. So the imagery becomes so important. These huge images and beautiful images and conveying these images, you know, and not as much, 
you know, and sort of the text and the, the descriptions probably come second. So if we can get these like beautiful images up, up, out there, then people are gonna be, buy much quicker. Yeah, I think another concept is I've watched your process from just generically mobile design that we're gonna experiment with and we're gonna test a lot is the notion of giving uh, the consumer a voice to and what their ultimate experience is. So you know, you can let them into the sharp drawer of knives and give them more controls and more content and more information, or you can have them simplify and turn those things off and keep it back to the strip down. So I think that's something, again, we're innovating into and we don't know the ultimate answer, but also um, different customers are gonna have different need states and if somebody is actually really not coming to shop, but they want the design stories, making sure that those aren't impossible for them to access as well, but not necessarily making that the primary core experience you put in front of everybody. Right, it's, you have to layer that complexity almost. It has to be there, but yet it has to be hidden as well so that you get the core function in the front. Exactly. Something we haven't started yet on the actual uh, devices is uh, segment-based solutions. We're actually going to start testing that. So the experience you might see if you're a regular shopper, you like to buy vintage, um, we're going to try to personalize and create that custom experience for you on the web. Obviously, if we're successful there, we'll look to, to bring that functionality um, onto the device. Is yeah, I think for V1 also we're, you know, we are such a storytelling company, but I think we want to go into it sort of, you know, slowly and make sure we do the research, get the response, and then, you know, in V2 and sort of when we move into, you know, there may be a place for more st storytelling in a different part of the app. So we're sort of just sort of, you know, tiptoeing into it. And, but there will be, you know, versions and different ways we, we do things. Perfect. I think that's the challenge of the limited viewport is how do we convey that story but also present the most important information, you know, up front and finding that delicate balance um, with the, the various customers that we have. Coolest design team ever, like attached at the brain, <laughs> finishing each other's sentences. <laughs> Amazing. It's like the right and left it's hemispheres, great. right? It's phenomenal. <laughs> well, Doug, that is all the questions I have. I want to throw it to the audience and make sure that they have plenty of time to Let's ask questions. The gentleman back there was the first to raise his hand. Yep. Yeah, so it, thinking like broad strokes, iPad 60%, iPhone 35%, all other 5%. So very, very iDevice. When you get into iPhone, um, majority app over native. Right now, iPad is 100% native. Um, obviously, the Safari that we expect to swing dramatically because it'll be a self-selecting sample of our most voracious customers who, when the app's available, <laughs> will download that and be our high spender. So I think the surprise is uh, when, you, when you lump mobile as tablet and smartphone together, there's an intrinsic assumption that it's probably a lot more tablet than, than smartphone. Uh, we see a ton of smartphone shopping, so it cannot be left behind or neglected. And as we mentioned earlier, one of our strategies is to piggyback off of our smartphone penetration with the universal app so that as we, we put our app strategy out of somebody's shopping iPhone or iPad, they're one customer to us. <laughs> gentlemen, up. Oh, you next. Yeah, the gentleman uh, on his hand. Could you please tell us a few words about the logistics and inventory management and fulfillment? Do you have your own warehouse or do you outsource? 
And uh, do you take inventory risk? Do you buy all the stuff? Is it firm order? Or, uh, That's more uh, than one I, question. No. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also, speaking, speaking of native iPad app, how are you going to, to avoid Apple's 30% ransom payment? Sounds good. So, um, did everyone in the back hear the question? Yeah. For the most part? So, the basic, were you raising your hand or did you not hear the question? Yeah, the, the core of the question is really, let's talk a little bit about the logistics of a business like this. Do we own inventory? Do we have warehouses? How do we get product to customers, et cetera? Then the second part of the question was, how do we avoid, um, with the iPad app, Apple's ransom? Uh, so, <laughs> effectively, yeah. Uh, so the, the first part is, one of our core sources of advantage of scaling and getting to a couple hundred million dollars in revenue in this model, I, I remember when I first joined the company and spent a little time, I was like, God, anyone could build a $20 million flash sale site. No problem, you can run it on Google Docs. The real trick is scaling it to multi-hundred million dollar e-commerce operation where you're fresh and changing every day. Because it's, um, we're more of a marketplace, in fact, than we are a retail company. Uh, when we look at our business, while we have a couple hundred million dollars in, in um, revenue, more at this point, if we were a retailer, we would carry 100 or $200 million of, in, of inventory to service that. Uh, in our case, we have less than $10 million of inventory on hand. So it's a tiny part of the business. And the way it works is, in our industry, we've built technology that we're able to work with our vendors who we've worked with a long time and have them ship directly to customers and do that as a strictly electronic relationship. Uh, one of the benefits of that is we don't have to buy the inventory before we sell it. We, ba we basically reserve the inventory, we sell it, and then we transmit the order to the, to the vendor to fulfill the customers. Um, then in other cases, there are folks that don't ship that well. Uh, so we have third-party fulfillment, so we don't own the warehouses, but they basically route their product to our fulfillment provider, they break it up and they split it back out. And then about 10% of the cases we have strategic inventory where we feel it's something that has to be very timely. So for example, on holiday, we'll ramp up when we're doing gifting and we'll take that inventory on hand. Uh, but we're, we're very allergic to inventory risk in general. We really like more of the marketplace model. Um, we have a very successful marketplace in the vintage business being run on our site today. All of that, again, is we're facilitating the transaction and then we're connecting, uh, having the seller send it to the buyer. So that's logistics side. Um, you know, if anything, I could say people process technology. Uh, you have to invest in those as part of this scaling. People process technology. <laughs> those are the, the three parts to scaling that part of the, the operation. And that's where experience matters. On the, because we don't collect money on our app, I don't think we're as subject to Apple's costs as other companies are. So basically, our app is a free app. So therefore, Apple gets whatever, 30% of free which is a good equation. Um, <laughs> I am not aware, but if anyone is, let me know of them <laughs> trying to reach into apps and taking then a percent of the app commission. That is not something we've heard or run across. So I think if you're in e-commerce, you're okay shape. If you're in gaming, clearly they're gonna try to take their commission. And you had a question here and then I'll get someone in the back afterward. Okay, thanks. Um, since photography is such a large part It's not yeah. early on for this question. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, so I'm wondering, um, you know, if you're measuring that and if that is something that's paying off, that they are actually pushing a lot of traffic and yep. more importantly, sales are happening as a result. 
question is basically is Pinterest, because we're an image centric company, is Pinterest a meaningful platform for us in terms of traffic generation and revenue? It's actually interesting. Um, right now, Pinterest is more important to us than Facebook or Twitter. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's the kingmaker for our business, but when you think of who is on Pinterest, it's often our target demographic. When you think about we put together a great lifestyle image or a great story or something to share, our stuff is very share-worthy with other enthusiasts who would want to have information about this, would want to comment on it. Um, it represents still a single-digit percent of traffic and revenue, so it's meaningful and it's free, which is great, um, and growing. Um, but I would say, you know, one of the things that I do get annoyed in the Silicon Valley hype cycle is, you know, companies put themselves under the banner of we're a social commerce company. And, you know, therefore, the notion that uh, we don't have to do marketing, just our customers will do all the marketing for us. I think anyone who's saying that is dramatically overstating the power of social on commerce. Uh, it's an ingredient in the soup, but you still need a world-class internet marketing team, brand marketing team, and it's one piece of an, a holistic marketing strategy. I'm so glad you said that. Good. That marketing is becoming obsolete and uh, it should be built into the product. And I get that. Like, marketing should be definitely built into the product, but I still think you need a marketing team. I think you will. You, you still need a killer marketing team. And on the social front, I actually think, if anything, um, it's as much of a customer service play as anything that if you have a great brand and great service, you get this incredible validation in the ecosystem that builds confidence behind your brand. And if you don't have a great product or great service, you get the negative cycle on that. So I actually think it has as much to do with brand trust as it has to do with audience building. You need the market team to build the audience. Uh, the social dialogue has more to do with the brand trust you're trying to build. And if you're as a company failing, um, it's much more transparent these days, which for quality companies is exciting because the crappy companies can go away. Very <laughs> good, I want to get someone in the back. There was a young lady who had her hand up earlier. Yeah, so question basically, uh, trying to do minimalist design for devices, how does conversion stack up across devices as you're making these trade-off choices? <coughs> um, it's a really hard thing to unpack because there's this notion of self-selection and bias that happens in it, that right now, our iPad, it, we measure RPU, revenue per user, revenue, or RPV, revenue per visit. iPad is our highest RPV platform of anything. So iPad, Safari, the best. I don't think though that's because it's the best experience we're delivering. I think it's because our most avid customers are at home at night and in, you know watching TV with their iPad or in bed instead of a book, snuggling up with One King's Lane um, and going through the day selections. Um, we see higher average order value on the iPad than we see on another platform. Again, that's me envisioning customers at home at night with a spouse looking at a phenomenal Stark area rug with a brilliant image in the room going, I gotta have this, honey. And he goes, okay. <laughs> a good husband. Right, right, right. Happy wife, happy and, life. And, um, and so I think there's a bit of self-selection in that. What we see on iPhone is lower average order value, slightly lower conversion, but not a dramatic difference 
it's the distance between iPad and web is bigger than the distance from web down to iPhone. From there, we go down to like Android, and it's a major drop off. And again, that's how we focused our strategy. And by the way, I carry an Android. I love Android. Um, it's a rocking platform and phone. Um, it's just for different businesses. There's very different consumer adoption curves. Ours happens to be iDevice or Bust. Actually, iPad, um, Safari, number one. Yeah. This gentleman right here. It's overtly not, in fact. Yeah, um, I think I think Pinterest is interesting. They're not in our space, but somebody adjacent that's interesting to keep an eye on. Um, there's a company called House, H-O-U-Z-Z. -Z. It's really interesting. Um, it, the bones of the vision are good. Uh, it's going to be an incredibly difficult execution risk or execution, and if they pull it off, it's going to be great. So House is much more of a social site where you go in and it would be like seeing images from interior designers that are really amazing. And then they count on those designers and other people to link up those images to where you can buy them. So it's not this like really fluid commerce experience, but it's an inspiration-led community social app. The website's terrible, the app is great. So they're also mobile first, which is actually interesting to me. So there's somebody who I, I have been spending some time on just thinking, I think it'll be great for consumers if they can connect the dots. Um, I have a little history in this. Back in the late 90s, I was at a software company called Broderbund Software. If anyone remembers Broderbund? Yeah, we're in the world of Carbon San Diego. Print shop, ribbon, <laughs> great stuff. Back in the days of consumer yeah. software. Uh, and we had a product called 3D Home Architect 3D Home Design. And we did try to do the same thing that you'd go through, create a design, and then try to buy out of the design. And it is hard to kind of connect those dots. But I think they're interesting. I don't think there's anybody else in home and flash sales that's inspired for a new commerce. Um, I, you know, when the Groupon craze was going on, there were these Groupon e-home things coming along, and I didn't think they'd be long for the world, and I think that's kind of panning out. Um, so I'd say one King's Lane and House, excited about, uh, not many other businesses. The horizontal flash sale sites like Gilt, I think if they stick their knitting and get back to apparel and like just kill it on men's and women apparel, they can be a great company. I think if they, they continue to try to be in food and kids and pets and like everything, I think it's hard to be all things to all people in this world. What about Home Mint? Home Mint? Justin? Justin? Where? Yeah. Timbaland? So I'll, 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 let's do this one by one. This will be fun. <laughs> and we're tweeting how yes, great this yes. will be. Um, <laughs> Zer, hashtag Zerb Soapbox. Yeah. So um, Home Mint to me, and I know the founders, so with total due respect, I think a brand has to have a soul to it. And I think one of the best things our founders did and we've all built around is the One Kings Lane brand soul is really bringing this, this democratization of home decor to consumers. Of you're getting access to a world that you've always been locked out of and now you're getting into and finding really great stuff. Home to me feels like you're leading with the, hey, we're gonna get really great celebrities, whether they're interested in home design or not, to get people excited about this product. And I don't think that's the unmet need in the market. Um, Anyone here a Home Mint fan or anyone know Home Mint? So not even so, the celebrities aren't reaching you yet. <laughs> um, um, and then Fab is interesting to me. I'll call it high beta. 
Um, I, I'm a survivor of the dot-com boom and bust, which was a really fun experience. Um, and Fab is going for it, and they are spending, and they're raising money, um, and they're not a home company. They're really um, a mishmash. You know, you, you, they, have, they have stuff that you could find at DWR, at Spencer's Gifts, like all different types of stuff, you know, lava lamps and T-shirts and uh, great end tables. And it's going to be interesting to see to me they're growing like crazy. Um, will they hit a wall? Will they make it profitable? All the questions around the business model. So like the website and the product's interesting. Uh, they just have to prove the business model. I think they've got a demographic, which is interesting. I think like young, urban, male, hipster, like core. I like businesses that kind of know who their core is. So I think Fab's got a shot from that perspective. We have time for one more question. Is that so, it? We're already over? Yeah, we're, we're getting there. How about there. this? Let's do two more. All right, let's All do right. two more. Two more questions. Um, let's go with someone in the back and then right over there. The gentleman in the, then we'll get someone up front. I do. <laughs> I think that's a really good idea, and it's really, really hard. And back when I talked about opportunity for innovation, now you always keep innovating. My last company was a web visualization company, and so I spent a lot of years. And actually, if you have you ever used Nike ID, where you get to design your own sneaker, mm -hmm. custom, put your you like it. Forrest has used it. Um, we helped my last company help invent that with Nike, basically. So I've been in the world of augmented reality and visualization. What's really hard about it is the content preparation. You know, how do you have all the, we launch several, several thousand new products a day, and how do you prepare that content to look really good in a virtual environment? You know, um, if it looked like Second Life, it's not good enough for the consumers. You know, if it looks like 3D rendering and it's kind of cartoony, um, it actually takes away from the brand experience and the likelihood to convert. So my sense is that it's further out than we would like it to be, but it's an insanely disruptive opportunity that companies will crack and will be one of them. You, sir, are you waiting? You're following up a really big picture question, too, by the way. No pressure. I'm going to try to go big picture. Uh, you talked <laughs> in the beginning about the need for continuous innovation, and you listed off some of the things you've done, uh, designer tag sales, vintage sales, obviously now mobile. What's next on the, on the path to continuous innovation? Can't answer that question. It's company proprietary. Uh, we have um, a bunch of things in the hopper um, in terms of how we're going to grow the business. But you know, frankly, it really is. We've got things that are staged out. That it is a competitive world, and you're just going to have to wait and see on that one. So let's do one more question. All right, all right. One more question. I didn't want to lay out on that one. You were <laughs> frantically waving over there, so. <laughs> Yeah, uh, question is, in terms of our mobile traffic breakdown between existing customers versus an acquisition source for new customer, what we're finding right now, and I think this is a here and now thing and will evolve, is the vast, vast majority of traffic are existing customers who have fallen in love with the franchise and the brand and the service, wanting to have a tighter connection to the company, not wanting to miss out on a day. 
Um, we have done mobile marketing, we have done app marketing. We're still predominantly finding the vast majority of people's first experience is they heard about us from a friend, they saw about us on Facebook, they, they saw one of our internet marketing, they searched, and that brings them into a web experience where they tend to sign up. So you know, at the dominant level, it's existing customers versus currently a source of new acquisition. I think as mobile ad formats get better, there's an opportunity for that to get better. Um, I'm, I'm a huge skeptic. I'm friends with the CTO of Pandora, and I give him a hard time. I'm like, Pandora is my favorite web service ever. Like, you could take away any web service from me, but you can't take away Pandora. But when I use it on mobile, I feel like their ads are designed when I'm trying to thumbs up or thumbs down a song. They try to make me click on a video game ad, and then all the stuff starts yeah. popping up. It drives me crazy. So I think right now we're in this kind of interim state on mobile advertising where people are using old metaphors and bringing the mobile and degrading the customer experience. I think once the mobile ad, and you're with me on that? Yeah. yeah. I agree with you on it, and that's why we just kind of banned the mobile. I work at PayPal now, and we kind of just said no to mobile. Mobile advertising. It's just crazy. Yeah, and so once the ad industry, and people will figure this stuff out, um, I think that'll be a bigger opportunity for companies like ours that are trying to get acquisition via mobile. So there you go. Off my soapbox now, right? Yes, that's off it. your soapbox. That's it. Thank you very much. Please uh, thank Doug and Jonathan and Sarah for coming down. Um, you guys made this a great last soapbox in this space. We'll see you at the next one next month in the new space. So look out for that. Thanks for coming. Right. Thank you for These coming. You guys are here. If you have any more design questions, resumes. <laughs> right here. <laughs>